Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Joshua Sperber, who is the author of Consumer Management in the Internet Age, How Customers Became Managers in the Modern Workplace. Joshua, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So I'm hoping you can start off by just talking a little bit about how you came about writing this book, how you got interested in this idea of consumer management. So I recount in the book... um, a story uh, from the mid-1990s. I worked at three restaurants uh, in Los Angeles. And in each of the restaurants, um, as is frequently the case in the service industry, I was regularly instructed by management to smile and to project a very enthusiastic manner to the customers. And um, at each, I was periodically uh, reprimanded for not apparently smiling enough. Um, But at one of these restaurants, uh, my apparent inability to adequately smile, got us into some trouble after a so-called mystery shopper came in and, you know, basically a company employee who comes into the restaurant um, posing as a customer and observes and reports on how the restaurant is doing. So one of these mystery shopper reports, among other things, criticized the host, which was me, for uh, inadequately smiling. And um, two things really struck me about, uh, about the ways in which my managers talked to me about the mystery shoppers. Um, the first was that they um, described these mystery shoppers as if they were autonomous customers and actual customers, as opposed to who they actually were. They were just another arm of management. So it frequently occurred to me, for instance, to make you know some sort of joke saying, well, why don't we just change the criteria with which uh, the mystery shoppers are using to evaluate us and tell them not to worry so much about whether employees smile. And then the mystery shopper could be happy and in turn will be happy and everyone will be happy. And I didn't make this joke naturally because it was merely designed to sort of poke at the disingenuousness with which uh, my managers talked about these mystery shoppers. And the second thing that really stuck with me was the fact that they described mystery shoppers, um, they really exalted the mystery shopper as the sort of personification of the sovereign consumer, suggesting that the consumer is always right. And this very much contradicted my daily observations at the restaurant, um, which was that customers were regularly denied um, all manner of requests, whether to have their bills reduced or to substitute um, some item on the early bird special, or even to have the, maybe the music turned down or the AC turned down. And um, it very much seemed to me that um, insofar it was as the, it was management um, that determined which customer complaints to really listen to and which to ignore. And in that regard, it was in actuality management. That's always right. So when I first learned now, you know, years ago about the website Yelp, um, I instantly had a guess that um, I bet restaurant managers and owners are using Yelp reviews in in the same way that they use or in similar ways that they use mystery shoppers. Um, So the project was primarily inspired by my desire to see if this was so. Um, And uh, secondly, 
Um, I wanted to know because uh, I wanted to know why not mystery shoppers, but Yelp reviewers would go out of their way to write about and upload reviews um, for which they're not paid. Uh, in that regard, there are important differences between Yelp reviewers and company mystery shoppers. Most obviously, Yelp reviewers aren't, aren't paid. They're voluntary. Um, they're also, insofar as they could be compared to corporate employees, they're, they're not trained. Uh, the reviews are going to be much more unstructured. So I wanted to see what motivated um, these Yelp reviewers insofar as their reviews were actually being used to assist management. Um, so those were my two big questions. Um, and then uh, I applied the, the, uh, the study to the website Rate My Professors, largely because by this point um, I was working as an adjunct instructor and this started as a dissertation. And my advisors told me, well, you really need another case, at least one other case study. Um, so I was thinking for a while. And then I, after thinking about hospitals and the way customer reviews might affect um, medical personnel, it occurred to me that, oh, I'm actually in my regular life subjected to a form of consumer evaluation in the, through Rate My Professor Reviews. So it provided um, a useful uh, comparison. And so you start out by sort of giving us a little bit of information. You know, you, your first chapter is that we are all managers, right? And we're sort of doing it for free. So you sort of set this up in a capitalist economy and a marketplace. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that sort of um, how people are exploited or uh, and that use of that online management system and how you see that play out right now? So there's a very large backstory that has to do with um, what I develop in the second chapter, the historic development of the modern consumer. Um, but I suppose before getting there, I could just I, uh, describe the process a little further based on my findings. So I conducted, I conducted two um, case studies in which I used interviews and surveys to talk to lots of people, primarily um, workers, both in restaurants and uh, primarily adjuncts in uh, colleges and universities. And then I talked to respectively uh, restaurant managers and owners and then department chairs and finally, I talked to um, waiters uh, and servers in general and bartenders, um, as well as their managers. And then I also talked to uh, Yelp reviewers and Rate My Professors reviewers. So the crux of my finding was um, to answer the first question with an emphatic yes, um, to sort of focus on Yelp. Um, the vast majority, there's almost no exceptions, of managers and owners I spoke with um, systematically check Yelp for reviews of their establishment and sometimes uh, on a daily basis. And um, when they see complaints um, about their servers, they act on those complaints by either uh, talking, just merely talking with or, um, or lecturing or sometimes suspending and even firing their servers. Um, so this has had uh, an effect, I argue, on the way that restaurant servers perform their work. Um, some people will say, well, what's really new about this or what's, what does this really imply? Because these after all are employees at will and employers don't ultimately really need an excuse to fire you if you're employed at will. And that's totally true. Um, but I argue that the real significance of the practice uh, is found not in those fired employees, but in the many, many employees who are not fired, but have become newly cognizant of a fireable offense. Um, and in this regard, there is a, uh, several important distinctions between the old-fashioned 
um, you know, mystery shopper reports and Yelp reviewers. So with mystery shoppers, um, if you were uh, if your restaurant received a, a report from a mystery shopper, you would, um, and we did this in fact, you know, we would assume correctly or not, it didn't matter, but we would assume we wouldn't be due for another report for a while. Um, we would also, again, correctly or incorrectly, it doesn't really matter. We would, we would make guesses sometimes about who a mystery shopper uh, is likely to be. So we say, oh, I think this middle-aged um, you know, man eating an entree in the middle of the afternoon seems like a mystery shopper. Let's be careful. Whereas we might conclude that a group of teenagers just you know, sharing fries, um, they're unlikely or less likely to be mystery shoppers. Uh, Yelp has changed this because theoretically every and any uh, customer simultaneously could be a mystery shopper. Um, so this has enabled management to um, far more effectively and intrusively survey their uh, customers. You're sort of always on. You don't get to catch your breath. Um, and then in turn, when I asked uh, servers, how has this affected you? I did get um, responses along the lines of it definitely adds stress. Yes, it makes you work harder. Um, it adds anxiety. These sort of not every server I talked to said this, but um, but many nevertheless did. Um, so in that regard, this is increasing um, a workplace productivity. And then there's a second sort of objection um, that comes along, or at least a you know a fair enough critical question, um, which is well. Isn't this merely an instance of uh, consumer power, right? And um, and at first glance, you might say yes. And then, so for instance, there's a story I tell in the book, um, told to me by a server in Manhattan, um, in which he uh, got a, a well, Yelp review was written that was primarily about him, and it was a five star review, and it really complimented him because the cu customer said. Oh, I went to this restaurant in Chelsea and I had the most wonderful conversation with the server about opera. And apparently the, the Yelp reviewer really loved opera. And it turns out that so did the server. And they had this really enriching, uh, erudite conversation about opera. So everything's fine. And then as a sort of you know, um, little hat tip, the, the customer writes this uh, sort of effusive Yelp review. That server actually got in trouble from his manager because when the manager read the review, the manager realized you're not turning the table over quickly enough. Um, you shouldn't have been talking so long with any one customer. You were just sort of given away. So in that regard, the review that a customer writes, I argue, becomes something very different once it's in the hand of management. And this could be seen in a few ways. Um, beyond that example, uh, customers all the time complain, for instance, about chasing. Um, when you, know, you finish your meal and you want to linger and chat with your friend for a while, and servers are told to, right, repeatedly come by the table and sort of make you feel awkward um, to sort of shoo you out and to turn over the table to keep money coming into the restaurant. Um, nobody as a customer really likes that, and they most certainly complain about it. But when um, managers read about complaints about chasing, they don't act on those complaints because they know, well, that's restaurant policy. Maybe they should, as somebody, actually a restaurant owner told me, maybe they should go to another restaurant. Um, this was the owner of a bistro and she said, bistro literally means fast, right? Um, they should, uh, they should, uh, eat quickly and then go, or, or they should go elsewhere. Um, similarly when, uh, reviews complain that prices are too high or the menu options are problematic or something about the decor, the noise, um, all manner of things, this, the standard default managerial response is like, well, that's not really their 
territory. What do they know? And there's managers and owners who actually get quite um, angry when they feel like customers are encroaching into their turf um, by criticizing how a steak was cooked or something. So there's actually a great deal of resentment within the restaurant industry toward Yelp. But then you have this one example when it comes to complaints specifically about workers that management acts on. So insofar as Yelp reviews indicates a form of consumer power, I argue that it's an awfully uh, narrow and uh, form of consumer power that's highly contingent upon the discretion of management. And you talk a bit, and uh, maybe this will move us into what you're saying about sort of this history of how sort of a con- being a consumer was invented. Um, but you, you mentioned that these online reviews are often, or at least by the people who are doing them, written for other consumers, right? They're not thinking about writing them for management or that, letting other consumers know. And it sort of changed its idea of what it means um, to be a consumer. So can you talk a bit about that, about this sort of how we sort of invented or were reinventing the idea of the consumer through these online um, spaces? Sure. Um, Maybe first I'll mention um, something I emphasize in the book, um, a very common misconception um, uh, that was um, repeated by many of the people, including for rate my professors, including department chairs, um, but certainly as well as um, restaurant managers and owners. And I think just in the general public, um, the misconception is that these types of sites, consumer run um, websites such as Yelp and rate my professors, um, are fundamentally unreliable because they must uh, reflect selection bias. So, in other words, that question that I mentioned at the beginning, which is who in the world would go out of their way, right, to put all this time, and some of these are very lengthy, detailed reviews, to write and upload a review that's either totally anonymous on Rate My Professors or sort of semi-anonymous on Yelp, just a first name and last initial, except for somebody who had a really positive or negative experience. So that's a very fair, I think, intuition. But I argue, based on what people told me, that it's, it's wrong. Um, instead, as you just said, or suggested, um, reviewers on both Yelp and write my professors primarily write reviews to help other reviewers, specifically to help other customers. And I came, which I wasn't expecting to hear or see, but I came across um, uh, a consistent uh, expression of sort of this altruistic uh, commitment to, sh- uh, to and uh, description of belonging to a shared community uh, with shared values, committed to uh, helping one another or quote unquote paying it forward um, with comments along the lines of, well, I received so much help, right, from these websites about which, you know, instructor grades really hard or which restaurant I should avoid or go to that I just want to pay it for. Uh, I want to help others. So in that regard, um, I argue that actually, on one hand, these might be a little more, there's still plenty of problems that have been well documented, uh, specifically concerning my professors. But nevertheless, I argue these are still more uh, reliable than I think people often reflexively resume, assume. And I think it, uh, I argue it says quite a bit about people's, um, what I would argue is almost maybe a universal desire for uh, community um, and to belong in sort of meaningful cooperative activity with others. Um, and then uh, I don't leave it there. I argue that this insofar as there's a universal desire for a sort of uh, cooperative activity, it takes on a very historically specific form within the context of what some refer to as late capitalism. 
And there's all sorts of ironies in there. Most obviously, this shared activity isn't really designed to benefit the whole of the community. Um, it's designed instead to benefit a sort of a, a narrowly uh, circumscribed component of the com community. And I think, as I said before, I think it's highly debatable how much it really helps customers. And it specifically, it is insofar as there's these people are helping one another, that help is coming um, very much at the expense of workers. Um, and at the same time, um, it isn't just not a bunch of people getting together in some sort of public or communal space. This type of communal activity is predicated on the existence of, in most cases, a for-profit website, right? That mediates their activity, that structures it, that tells them where to write and how to write. And um, there's been many, many conversations about the notorious chili pepper, right? Um, whether you use it or not, you're going to know about the chili pepper that used to exist. And it's been thankfully removed on rate my professors. So um, a private, you know, very small number of people who privately own these um, sites Sort of structure your activity, and they could also pull the plug. There are stories of, I mean, famously, you know, MySpace or Friendster, um, something like that. But others, um, sites that brought people together, that provided a platform for meaningful activity that just get pulled precisely because they're privately owned and they weren't making enough profit or they got bought out or some other reason. And that illustrates, I argue, the precariousness of this sort of um, communal activity and the way I describe it is um, such activity or consumer management could be very much identified as a response to ubiquitous social alienation. And in some degree, it does help minimize this form of alienation, but uh, it simultaneously reproduces the material bases of the alienation. So it's a superficial rather than a meaningful or structural uh, solution to uh, widespread alienation. Mm -hmm. Now, go back to what you were so, sort of saying at the beginning with these reviews and how customers are writing them or consumers are writing them for other consumers or customers. Like when I was reading this, it made me really think about um, Zappos, which is my favorite place to buy shoes because of the reviews, because the reviews are always really helpful and they're always like when the customer the customers are always really helpful about talking about why they want the shoes and how they, you know, how the shoes work. And it's a bit different because it's an online platform. It might be a bit different than um, Yelp. Right. But it made me think of that idea that where I go to find information, wanting to find people who are the most helpful to help me make a decision on where I want to go or that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's, that's true. Um, I'll look at, um, reviews if I'm going to buy something. So in one regard, um, they can be helpful. And there's an irony in which um, adding reviews or adding sort of unpaid content by people, even if they enjoy it or finding it meaningful, uh, helps increase site traffic because there's more to look at, right, on the website, most prominently on Yelp. So in one sense, this could be seen as a form of unpaid labor. Um, these reviewers but on another hand, because they're helping produce profit that they don't share in, right? But on the other hand, we engage in all sorts of unpaid labor in our lives, um, including taking care of our children, among other things that we find um, personally meaningful. I um, respond to sort of the very reasonable observation that, look, these sites actually could help people. And I'm um, 
and I could, you know, bring it back to Yelp and then maybe we could see if we could, um, you know, uh, apply it to shoes. Um, I see there's actually a, a sort of a problem with the notion that this is helpful. And the problem has to do with the nature of, uh, of the business activity that's occurring. So for example, um, some people want to say, look, Yelp is improving customer service by insofar as what, if what you're describing is true, right? And leaving aside that <laughs> we're all workers and concerns about workers and all those issues, putting that all aside, isn't that in at least one respect a good that um, customer service or life for customers is getting better? Um, and I argue, I don't really think it's necessarily over the long term getting better. And that's because to take restaurants, um, restaurants are engaged in a highly competitive, as are most industries, um, industry. And there's continual uh, structural economic pressure on, uh, on restaurants to, for example, reduce costs and to maximize profit. So you might think, well, the server is working hard, but maybe an equally important issue, if not a bigger issue, is how many people are staffed on the floor, Right. Maybe the server is actually not lazy or just goofing off, but maybe the floor is uh, understaffed because management's doing its best to reduce costs or workers are so overworked in general that they're getting sick and people don't come in for a Sunday shift or something like that. Um, simultaneously, people are very, of course, concerned about food quality. Well, decent food in the society costs money, right? To go organic or to get better food, um, you have to pay more money. So Food is a cost if it's unless it's a very sort of elite business model. If it's the average kind of the vast majority of restaurants, um, there is therefore economic incentives to buy suboptimal food to provide suboptimal service. Right? You could only make the server smile so much, or maybe for most people, it's more important that um, you know the food comes promptly, which does is sometimes beyond the servers, as I suggested. Um, control maybe the understaffed in the kitchen, among other things. So in that regard, we sort of, I argue that we operate under this uh, prevailing myth that um, you know, business stays in business, right? And does well when they please the customer. And I think you could very easily just turn that around and say, actually, there are powerful incentives to not only provide good service, but to provide bad service. And um, one example, you know, an implication of this might be, okay, I learn about um, a really nice restaurant, uh, some cool restaurant from uh, Yelp, and they have some really good deal. Give it a few months, right? Just under the, the mechanics of supply, supply and demand. Um, if that restaurant grows, as it probably needs to grow, right? You're going to grow or sink um, for most business models. Um, that quality that distinguished it is very well might not be there anymore. And we all have, I would argue, we've probably all experienced something like that. What happened? They used to be so great. They used to have such good quality. Or maybe more people are coming to the neighborhood and um, rents increase, right? And all of a sudden, the restaurant is facing more pressure than it used to as a sort of, you know, uh, ironic effect of its success. Um, so what, uh, if we reduce it to an individual level, right, we might say, okay, um, these in the here and now, right, a, a review sites and could certainly help customers, but I think it's just as important, just as valid to not only uh, individualize ourselves, but to identify ourselves as what we simultaneously are, which is uh, an aggregate, 
we're part of consumers and in general dealing with business in general. Um, and therefore, when we look at it that way, we encounter, you know, many frequently called collective action problems. Um, so you might find a, right, a really nice uh, deal on shoes or a good recommendation for shoes and um, for today. But odds are, I think, uh, better than not that those good shoes for a variety of structural economic pressures um, are not necessarily going to continue to be good over a long period. And one could say, well, then you just find the new pair of shoes. And my response is, well, that's what we end up doing. But all that takes a lot of time and effort and trial and error and wasting some money on a shoe brand that maybe used to be good and all of a sudden now is falling like rock parts, uh, <laughs> which I experienced with, um, which are falling apart much quick, more quickly than they used to. So it sort of puts us in this uh, mode of whack-a-mole, if you will, in which we're doing an awful lot of unpaid work and wasting in one respect, right? Wasting time and money um, to just sort of stay ahead of this perpetually shifting business dynamic. And we're not really collectively ever going to overcome it. We're, the consumer is not designed to um, overcome or become powerful within this dynamic. Um, right. And you talk a bit about that idea of how um, even prior to the internet, the consumer was trained to be a worker, right? You, you mentioned McDonald's and that, um, and how uh, management and how big business has really thought about how do you train a worker to do, I, I remember when, even when all these sort of automated checkout lanes were coming into play too, right? So we're training the worker, we're training the consumer to do the work instead of having workers. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that or not, but that idea of how this is, how we've been doing that in the first place, you know, how we've been doing that all along. Yeah. That's, I would say is really the, the context for the book. And I try to trace that history and in a sense, the book was written as a response to um, a, a lot of dominant ideologies concerning consumer sovereignty and that the system works for the consumer. And some of these ideas are frequently voiced, um, I, I think, rather ahistorically by libertarians. So I sort of got so frustrated with libertarians um, that as well as my decades old experience at Coco's um, so it helped inspire the book. Um, so the place to start is historical context and to look at um, what I describe in the book is, um, and many, many others have talked about as the invention of the modern consumer. And on one hand, we've always consumed. We've always, since the species emerged, we've had to eat and drink and wear clothes. So that in itself is not new, but um, there's, I would say, a qualitative shift that's occurred under um, the emergence of industrial capitalism. Um, so the very first step in creating consumers is, or the first, we might say, precondition is to deprive people of their ability to uh, support themselves, to self-subsist. And that's precisely what happened over you know, a series of, uh, of centuries um, through the, the so-called enclosures of the commons, where people primarily used to support themselves. And insofar as there was market activity, it represented a very, very small aspect of their economic activity. It wasn't the basis of society um, in the way that it is today. So they didn't want to be kicked off the land. 
Um, nobody does, both under colonialism or originally in England um, and in Scotland. Um, but they were forcibly kicked off the land. And you know, it's an old story. Once landowners realized they could more profitably use the land for wool and things like that. And there was a long period of so-called wandering poor where um, people were for the first time in, you know, as far as anybody could remember, as far as memory went back, where they were not part of the, for better and worse. It's not, we don't want to romanticize the era, but nevertheless, uh, it was the first time in a, a tremendously long time where people weren't conceived as part of the land and weren't therefore able to support themselves. Um, and eventually, of course, industrial capitalism emerges and uh, jobs are created primarily in urban areas and people from a position of dependence, from a uh, rather historically new position of not being able to meet their very basic needs for survival are in effect um, extorted into selling their labor time for wages so then they could go to a market and buy what they would previously have produced themselves or shared with others who produced. So um, the point is that the... um, the invention of the modern consumer shows that, or the emergence of the modern consumer shows that consumers are foundationally weak. Our very emergence is a reflection of profound weakness because we have been made dependent on a market. Um, we are less independent and that dependence leads the vast majority, unless you're born really rich to have to sell your labor time again, to buy what you would have previously not have, what, what you previously would have had access to. Um, so that weakness uh, is in a very different way still, or not so different way in some regards, um, is still present today. And I think informs, um, the ensuing evolution of consumers. And this has been very much detailed by, um, many writers. Um, and, um, I, I use some of these writers, so I trace some of the secondary literature. And, um, one example is, um, uh, the, uh, you, you refer to some of this, but an earlier example about a hundred years ago is the creation of the first supermarkets in the form of Piggly Wigglies. And people didn't really necessarily know how to do this. Right. Um, but they were taught to go into these stores and follow these narrow aisles and everything they saw from the aisles. They went down to the products placed on the shelves, you know, where some products where their eyes fell, other products that, um, you know, for, different business reasons on lower shelves that were harder to see. And then eventually leaving the store, they're sort of processed, right? As the owner of the first Piggly Wiggly's described, processed through these, um, you know, kind of turnstiles or aisles where they have to at least go by a register. And then that's when they finally meet a uh, store employee. And the idea was it's, it's really human beings themselves, specifically customers who are being processed. And to do that, to systematically extract wages um, from customers was not a natural or organic process. It took a great deal of uh, research and trial and error and uh, effort. Um, but the sort of a common denominator with all of this is um, the fact that consumers, in effect, are a means to an end for uh, producers of goods and don't necessarily have initiative. And it sometimes could be seen as, I think, somewhat of a pawn in this process. So again, there's a you know, prevailing myth that, well, business makes what consumers want, right? Doesn't consumer demand sort of lead the way? Isn't this how this beautiful system works? Um, 
And again, that's just, you could refute that with history. So James Benninger, who wrote a wonderful book um, on this, um, describes a story in which uh, a farmer, thanks to uh, the use of new industrial technology, is able to exponentially increase his production of oats, right? So all of a sudden this farmer has a problem because now he's making more oats than like the rest of the country combined. And at this point, oats are primarily seen as food for horses. And the irony is you have all of this food that could feed the whole country, but because you're in capitalism, it's actually useless to you. If you can't sell it on a market, you're just going to burn it or let it rot or something. So you have to absolutely find a way to sell it. And the, the, salient factor in this process is not what some customer wants it's what's cheap to produce okay so in this case um uh they create a a very early national advertising campaign uh trying to persuade people that actually oatmeal uh is a really good breakfast food and sort of modern breakfast is invented and it's not just for horses it's for people and enough people are persuaded that, okay, you know, I'm going to give this a chance. I'm seeing these ads everywhere. Um, maybe it's being sold. I can't get away from it. Why don't we try oatmeal? Lo and behold, a lot of people like oatmeal. I like oatmeal too, right? Um, so the point is very much not to say that people are just sort of dupes, right? Um, people do have relative agency and autonomy. We're not just, I use the term pawns, but maybe that's actually too, too harsh because we do have agency. We could reject what the market offers us but we don't get to choose what the market produces in the first place. And that's determined by concerns for costs and efficiency. Um, So nobody set out saying, we want oatmeal. We want oatmeal. Like, yes, your wishes are coming. Here's lots of oatmeal. Um, It started the other way. And I think that's very much more often the case um, with production. And, um, um, and we, we could, that says a lot about what market research is all about as well. So in the chapter, um, I go through some of that history and then make the point that quite quickly consumers become very savvy. And most people don't now have to be shown how to shop at a basic supermarket. And as you mentioned, um, the demands are always increasing. So not, not only do we shop now, but we work these um, you know, automated or self uh, checkouts um, or we're being strongly encouraged to do that. Um, but as the 20th century, you know, moves along, uh, the demands on consumers weren't stagnant. They became, um, increasingly more sophisticated. So from learning basic shopping and how to deal with, you know, what brands are and trademarks and this sort of thing, you know, uh, pretty soon people are, um, pumping gas into their cars and, um, and yes, dealing with supermarkets. And then eventually, as you suggest, as you said, uh, we get McDonald's, right, which is sort of a new level of sophistication. Um, there's a joke. Um, I think it's Robin Leidner who repeats this joke in, in her book, and which is nobody ever went into a McDonald's and said, well, what's good today? Right. We know or that per- if that person did that, they'd really be scoffed at by everybody, the, the cashier as well as the other customers in line. Um, so there's sort of expectations put on uh, consumers to use a McDonald's to know not only where to end, but where to sit, where to order, how to bring your food back and, you know, clean your table, um, and this sort of thing. And simultaneously it's fast food. And if you didn't get the message, you know, it's kind of garish colors and the 
the tables are hard plastic and are not um, very comfortable. And you see a sort of similar version of the story plays out um, at places like Walmart, right? Where um, those are stores that are harder to get to, you know, so they take advantage of cheap real estate. Um, there's not going to be too many uh, employees in the store. You kind of have to fend for yourself and usually a really large uh, warehouse type store. Um, but the demands are being increased. And the story, I argue, sort of eventually leads to a new stage of consumer sophistication, which goes beyond doing sort of uh, material tasks to, t uh, um, to sort of internalizing, further internalizing a consumer ethos that is sort of a prerequisite for engaging in far more intellectual tasks to the point where um, consumers are producing things. Um, and there's a massive literature on so-called prosumption. Um, you know, the combination of producing and consuming and some um, well-known examples of this type of work would include, well, um, consumers are incorporated into various uh, marketing campaigns. You know, could you, could you invent, you know, the next lifesaver or make your own potato chip, right? And somebody's going to win the contest or design your own sneaker or teddy bear, all these sort of things and um, requires uh, really sort of a great deal of initiative um, among consumers. So they don't really have to be told what's going on, but they sort of um, already have a certain mentality where they will enthusiastic embrace this kind of uh, activity. And then I argue for my purposes in the book that the culmination of this activity could be seen in um, online consumer management where consumers are actually, it wouldn't have worked in this exact same way um, in the past, although you could see uh, precedents for consumer management uh, in the past in the early department stores, for example. Um, but for consumers to go online and to write a detailed, right, um, observant, thoughtful um, review, almost playing a food critic, right, of a restaurant or of their college instructor um, requires a few... Uh, uh, preconditions, you might say, a certain way of looking at the world and uh, understanding your role in the world and what's appropriate and purposeful activity in that world. But again, I think it kind of goes without saying, but it frequently it ends up not being the case or forgotten. So none of this is natural, spontaneous, or organic. It all developed through um, very specific historic processes and in turn tells us a great deal about where we are as, um, as a society. Right. And so you move, you've talked a bit about Yelp, um, as we've been talking, but you move into, right. These focus, the, this focus on Yelp and rate my professor. And so do you want to talk a bit more maybe about, we'll start with Yelp and sort of what you found, maybe even sort of setting Yelp up, um, sort of the history of Yelp, because you get into that, just a, a little bit, but sort of giving us that. And then you move into thinking about the roles of the reviewers and the servers and the managers, all of which you've talked about, but I'm not sure if there's anything else in that chapter you'd want to sort of share or point out. Um, yeah, I did kind of jump ahead to that. Which is fine. I just was, I just <laughs> want to make sure if there's anything else in there that. Well, you mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned the origins um, Yelp, apparently, you know, was quite different when it began and the idea was was for people to refer restaurants to one another and there was a small component um, 
of the website, which is write your own reviews. And it was sort of seen by the founders of Yelp as sort of an afterthought. But people really, really liked doing that. It kind of caught fire. And then Yelp, a short while later, ends up getting redesigned, um, prioritizing or, um, that aspect of Yelp. Be a customer reviewer. And people enjoy that. Um, so I think it's really dangerous to make arguments of so-called false consciousness and say they're simply being tricked because people do get a lot of uh, gratification from this activity. There's actually a really good South Park episode on Yelp um, that um, where I think they, in one regard, capture in a less flattering regard, capture part of the spirit of Yelp, which is these people are playing the expert um, and they're fashioning themselves some you know, influential uh, food critics. So people, reviewers have told me like, what I really like to do is go to a restaurant and I don't tell them that I'm a Yelp reviewer or an elite, you know, which is a special brand of Yelp reviewer that gets all manner of social capital and um, is privy to various perks and invitations to parties. And uh, you could lose actually your elite status if you don't write prolifically enough or detailed enough. Um, so you have these elite reviewers um, who take this activity awfully seriously. So on one side, which I mentioned previously, is sort of the, um, the collective meaning Right, and also uh, these um, reviewers would fr would consistently bridle at any suggestion if I asked a question along the lines of, "Well, do you ever engage in quid pro quos?" Right, like you give a five star review for um, some sort of discount, and you get these emphatic no's, and that would corrupt the spirit, right, and the, the letter of of the activity. And this is um, this is taken really seriously, and I think it's essential to. Um, acknowledge that and simultaneously identify uh, the sort of the source of meaning that this provides people. And then there's what you may be called, um, you know, the South Park or less flattering aspect of it, or, and it's certainly related, which is um, illustrated in a reviewer who told me, um, you know, uh, I, I like going to a restaurant and pretending like I'm just like any other customer, right? Um, it's like, so they're, there's this, and I compare it a bit to, uh, you know, this fascination with superheroes, this sort of fascination with you have this, no, you're not just like the schmo that everybody sees in your daily life. You have this powerful secret identity um, that maybe makes up for the sense that you're, and myself included, right, that we're all schmoes. Um, and you could sort of enact revenge on these, you know, wrong, bad businesses. Or so, someone told me, like, yeah, I... Um, a, a, a server thanked me for writing a, a nice review of, of him. And, you know, I said, you know what? I don't do this for the fame. I do it because it's the right thing to do. And, you know, not to make fun, right? That's not, but, um, but this idea of like the right thing to do, you know, you could just give the person a really big tip and, but nobody's going to know about that. So the point is you need to do what you're perceiving to be a good deed um, which in reality, I think that's highly debatable. Um, but you just as much, you need people to know about this. So I draw a comparison between the sort of informal customer review system that existed at, um, at least one of the restaurants I worked at and Yelp. So in the, sometimes you still see this, but in the old days, you know, how are we doing? You fill out a little index card with a golf pencil and put it in some brown box and you don't know if anybody's ever going to see it. And at the restaurant, um, Coco's that um, had this once a month, if anything, we just never really heard about these things, right? They weren't taken very seriously. 
by contrast, Yelp is public and it's for a mass audience and it's illuminated. And yeah, people could get, you know, likes um, or like cool kind of um, reacts to their posts. Um, And there again, it's not a, uh, a Yelp reviewer talking to a manager who knows where that would get you. Right. But they're talking to other um, customers. And then it turns out the manager sees this too. So there must be some sort of rush, right. To, um, to engaging in this activity. And I myself have used Yelp to complain about a couple of businesses that (laughs) badly wronged me. And, um, you know, and I kind of caught myself doing this and one, I wasn't going to talk about any worker, but right. I, but I still thought, well, am I, (laughs) am I showing that I don't believe in my whole argument by doing this? And part of it was, well, it felt good to vent, um, and to sort of punish this business. But then as I argued before due to really this, um, uh, for lack of a better phrase, a collective action problem. If I somehow magically, and actually it's not that magical, if when it's been shown it happens, it when negative Yelp reviews bring down, for example, a restaurant, um, okay, you punish that individual business, cool. But guess what? A new business is going to emerge, maybe actually owned by the same person. Um, but regardless of that, a new business is going to emerge and they're going to have structural incentives to screw you all over we're not really going to transcend the demands of cost reduction by business to stay in business. So I'm very sympathetic in many ways to this activity and I've engaged in it in in some regards myself, but I think it, um, it really does reflect weakness even as it doesn't, uh, it leaves us with a very different feeling, um, which I think actually could be a bit dangerous. Mm -hmm. So, so we talked, you know, we talked about Yelp. How about Rate My Professor? So, the other site that you looked at was Rate My Professor. So, maybe you can talk a little bit about for anybody who doesn't know what Rate My Professor does and what it is, and then sort of what you found with this because Rate My Professor is really fascinating too, um, just because of the controversy it's also had um, in in the in the in academia right so can you talk a little bit about that and what you sort of found right so rate my professors um comes out of the bay area out of menlo park and is presented as um a site not owned but nevertheless used by and for uh college and university students right as the name suggests and whereas in yelp you write a review of a restaurant and you may or also may not discuss service um, by contrast, every Rate My Professor page is actually devoted to and named after a specific instructor. Um, so that's really what it's about. Um, and there's um, and there's a large number, there has anyway been a large number, of these types of um, websites. But Rate My Professors has become the dominant one. It's, it's far and away the most popular one. And um, you could go search your professor right at the end of a class or at any time. Um, or if they don't have a page, you could just create one for a professor. And then you, and the, they re, actually, while I was still writing the book, they um, revamped the format. So I had to account for that, but either before or after the gist is your um, you answer a few sort of uh, set questions um, regarding the professor's um, ease and style and this sort of thing. And then you could write a pretty short um, uh, comment of your own, letting others know what kind of instructor this is. So on one hand, um, 
this would seem at least at first glance to sort of be a politically progressive phenomenon. Um, there's a lot of literature on uh, the origins of student evaluations um, and there's a little bit of debate, but for the most part, you could see these evaluations becoming more prominent in part as a response of the student protest movements in the 1960s and 70s. And there most certainly historically are abuses of professorial power, right? Um, unfair or abusive um, and all manner of other things, professors. So insofar as historically students want to get more control over their lives and over those who have authority over them, um, that seems like a really laudable act. Um, nevertheless, as time goes by, um, uh, college and university administrations uh, get increasing control over um, originally student evaluations. Um, and now they could be seen as something, and this is my experience, with evaluations as an adjunct for several years, um, as a sort of cudgel uh, to be used against workers um, that could be invoked if the ad, you know the workers are unpopular among the administrators or the chair for some reason or and otherwise are probably going to be neglected. Um, so anyhow, rate my professors is uh, the website is far more um, recent and it's a very narrow um, range of um, of uh, subjects in which the student is going to evaluate. And what becomes very clear on the majority, the vast majority of reviews, um, and then this was echoed by the majority of reviewers I uh, talked to, is that, um, and it shouldn't be too surprising, um, reviewers are primarily looking for easy graders. Um, that seems to be the top concern. And, um, and I argue, or in the book, or this is my experience, and it's what many, many people have um, told me as well, it's not everybody I talk to, but certainly a, um, a lot, that um, specifically for precarious, you know, and that is non-tenured uh, professors, and then I focus specifically on adjuncts, um, this awareness of being subject to review, right, to, uh, and not just review, but public review by any and every student has changed the way that instructors think about and um, perform their work. Um, and there's, um, so some instructors said, well, I'm going to grade papers faster because of this. Some have, um, said that they hold their tongues. They don't want to engage in controversial, um, you know, topics and alienate kind of a group of, you know, unpleasant students and therefore get bad reviews. Um, and some have suggested that they grade more generously. And there's uh, research indicating very much of the relationship between rate my professors and student evaluations in general and grade inflation. And the reasoning, I think, is very uh, convincing, which is that um, if you were uh, a temporary instructor, a part-time instructor, and you don't have guaranteed work, and you get a bad reputation, and in this regard, bad probably means you're not an easy grader, you're depending where you are as a school. But there's a good chance that your class might not fill the next semester. And if your class doesn't fill, um, your class could be canceled, and your livelihood's going to be affected. So I argue that actually this could be seen as a form of um, consumer power or market coercion, chasing, uh, changing the way instructors um, teach. So, you know, we are always young people or everyone sort of, there's always sort of a new fad or a new thing. It used to be Facebook. Now it's moved to, you know, Snapchat. 
<clears throat> they keep moving um, to different platforms. Do you think Great My Professors is still used as much as it um, has been in the past? Do you think it's going to continue to have that power or and that staying power? Or and this is more speculation, right? Or do you think that um, it will eventually run its course and that will change? I don't see it changing. And it might be another website that does it differently. But the basic activity, I think, makes a ton of sense and is like actually very predictable. And there's an irony because um, you know faculty um, cha- and chairs often complain about the, um, the common unwillingness of students to fill out voluntary student evaluations. They don't typically want to fill these out. There's often low response rates or they won't write sort of comments. They'll just do the bare minimum of anything at all. And, um, and that's sort of a persistent uh, problem, at least in many places. How do you get the students to fill out these evaluations? And then it seems really strange, if not a bit hurtful, that um, millions of students will write uh, reviews of their instructors right there on Rate My Professors. And of course, again, as with restaurants and the old fashioned um, in restaurant anonymous review is with rate my professors, you're actually communicating. This is something a lot of the chairs I talked to didn't get, um, where they poo pooed rate my professors and said, our evaluations are just fine. They address student concerns. They don't, they're just that, you know, they're adequate. I'm like, well, not from the student's perspective, apparently, because the students aren't concerned about just filling out some evaluation that falls into a void and that maybe will be read by the chair and the instructor. Um, students want to communicate with each other. Um, they want to know that they're com- being communi- uh, being heard. Um, and not only that, but they have relatively different interests. There's overlapping interests, but they very much want to know, um, as many have said explicitly, well, who's easy? If there's two instructors ch- teaching the same subject, who's going to make me sweat and who am I just going to get through this for? So, it, you know, there's a lot of hand-rigging or pearl-clutching about this, and I think some of that becomes in its own way um, problematic, right? If not naive, but it, they're reflecting a very, again, predictable, logical consumer mentality. They're, they're, and I think it's disingenuous of um, uh, departments, right, or administrators to uh, be shocked that students would do this. They're being treated like consumers. They're paying a ton of money um, <laughs> to go to school and going often into massive debt. Um, and they're probably working. Right. And sorry, but pursuing the life of the mind is like a luxury that most people don't necessarily have access to. If Anybody even has an attention span left to do it. Um, so this is, again, very predictable activity. They're going to help each other one way or another, whether it's RMP or some other site, find easy instructors. And um, obviously <laughs> putting pressure on instructors to be easier, um, among other things. No, no. I mean, I often see students even ask that I, you know, being an English department, you teach composition. I often will have students even ask me if they're going to move from one composition course, then the next semester to another one, who should I take? Right. Or they'll ask one another or they'll get that feedback from other students. So whether it's on rate my professor or whether it's just talking to other students, they're doing that. Right. And creating that. Yeah. So we've talked for a while. So I'm not sure if you have any last things you want to share about um, your book, sort of some of those conclusions that you came to or what you sort of, um, you've talked about this sort of all along, but if there's any sort of last couple of things that you want to just sort of address that you really found. 
fascinating? Um, well, I think maybe coming back to what uh, one of the things we started with, um, you know, I'm arguing that um, trying to move away from a false consciousness or, you know, somewhat demeaning or patronizing account and identifying the ways that look in a rather alienating, frenetic, cutthroat, um, rather harsh society in many regards, certainly economically. Um, this activity makes a lot of sense. And in one regard, I think it's rather uplifting because based on what reviewers have told me, that I think people are genuinely interested in helping each other and sort of, for lack of a better word, being good, right? But what constitutes good and what constitutes help is very much historically structured. And it takes on a very specific meaning uh, in contemporary capitalism. So the effects of that goodness, right, really, on one hand, come at the expense of making workers' lives uh, more stressful and miserable. And on the other hand, I argue, don't, in collective terms or aggregate terms, don't necessarily improve conditions for workers. And at the same time, the only real obvious takeaway from this is you are nevertheless, through providing unpaid content for these websites, you are enriching these websites that then increase their uh, traffic and thereby their advertising revenue. So in spite of all things, I think in spite of the best of uh, sort of human tendencies, we are, um, we're engaging in uh, alienated and self-exploitative activity. I have a whole section called uh, the exploitation of alienation. And I think we're caught in a trap uh, in many ways, and, and, um, you know, extending well beyond this activity. I think we're caught in a trap, but uh, I think in this particular case, we could look at some of the historical development and preconditions of this trap and um, some of the ways in which it is actually a trap and like a good trap or an effective trap in some ways it's very attractive and um, and enjoyable and rewarding and uh, but that's precisely what makes it a trap and if we actually want to engage in the work of um, improving things right for the world or saving ourselves <laughs> as a species um, we're not going to do it um, in the way that uh, we're doing it. And what I describe um, in the book, we're going to have to um, put some brakes on many um, of the things that we do and sort of find another way. And there's not going to be some friendly privately owned website that's going to make that easy for us or some, you know, popular um, ideology or popular encouragement that uh, makes it easy for us and we'll probably not get likes for doing it. <laughs> but I think that's where we are. Right. So um, before we go, are you working on anything else that you'd like to sort of talk about or share much? Oh, I'm um, in the early stages of writing another manuscript focusing specifically um, on uh, in a much more detailed way on the historic development of student evaluations in universities and some of the shifts they've gone through and that they, those shit with those shifts reflect historically about the mo the modern university. And then I bring in my professors to it as well. And that's tentatively titled turf war. Um, and, um, so that's something I'm continuing. Um, I'm working on, um, a monthly review just told me yesterday that they're going to publish, um, 
a section of the first chapter of this book, uh, specifically my discussion of the sharing economy. So I was I was happy to hear that. Perfect. And I guess then my speculation question worked. <laughs> For the yeah. yeah. Uh, because I'm always really interested in that idea of like, uh, yes, and there's always a large discussion on like, do these, uh, does student feedback, does student evaluation really work? Um, like how much of it do we need to take into account, but it's not going away. And so how do we, yeah. Yeah. I would say it works and that's the problem. Yeah. And that, yes, that we don't like how it works or we don't like or how it's it designed us. to work and, yes. and what it does. And yeah, that makes sense. Well, this has been really great. So again, this is um, Joshua Sperber who wrote consumer management in the internet age, how customers became managers in the modern work. Uh, and this is Rebecca Buchanan, co-host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. Joshua, thanks again for talking with me. Thank you very much. Thanks.